November 12th, suicide bombing in Beirut, Lebanon. November 13th, multi-site rampage in Paris, France. November 17th, bombing in Kano and Yola, Nigeria. It's an arbitrary list of violent occurrences, but I mention them because hours before they took place, I had recorded an episode about peacemaking. As I went through the mixes, I wondered if the askew timeline would unnerve listeners as much as it did me, but I suppose we're always preceded by conflict. Sometimes we just don't recognize it. John Rudy is the peacemaker in residence at Elizabethtown College. He suggests that there's a lot we don't recognize about conflict. Conflict will exist in a perfect world, but I think conflict, as in so many things, is, is neutral. It presents the opportunity. What are we going to do with it? And that's coming up right now. From SowingTheSeed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, a podcast with future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you joined us. It's our pleasure to have John Rudy in the studio. He's Peacemaker in Residence here at Elizabethtown College. And that's a pretty August title, Peacemaker in Residence. Um, you're a professional peacemaker. My mom used to talk about, you know, be a peacemaker in our household. I have siblings, and so we'd get in arguments, and she'd say, Richard, are you being the peacemaker? So a professional peacemaker, what's, what's that about? What does a professional peacemaker do? Well, Richard, these questions that uh, you sent me ahead of time, <laughs> you put the toughest one right up at the top. That's um, how we do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I... My first response was, well, when you find out, Richard, let me know what <laughs> right. it is. Um, I came to this this work uh, very circuitously. Um, I, I, I actually think of myself as a generalist. I have a, a, a passion for peacemaking. And I think my life's experience, my life's work has um, th- this title of peacemaker in residence is kind of like the culmination of all of that. So... I find myself at E-Town with that title, and I'm trying to live into it, trying to um, trying to actually line up all, you know, the inner and the outer peacemaking. Um, I have a lot of students in class um, who will ask me about, uh, you know, direction in life, about life's goals and life, life work. And very few of them do I encourage to actually pursue peace building as as a an end in and of itself. I think um, ideally uh, peacemaking is built into whatever the interests are, whatever the t- the uh, the pursuit is, and um, to to have that as the focus. Uh, there are very few jobs out there like that. So. So peacemaking really is kind of an activity. It's an action or a behavior. A, a thing you do, not so much an end, but kind of the means or yeah. way you go about. And the uh, attitudes you bring into just the normal daily conversations and interactions with people. Um, I think each of us needs to be the peacemaker in our own right. Um, I think we can't afford to continue as we can, uh, as we have without the, um, you know, without these kinds of skills. We have so much capacity as a human species 
uh, in technology, for example, uh, the advances in that are amazing. Have we kept up with the ability to address the kind of conflicts that come with an ever-increasing complexity to life, um, the ever-increasing connectedness we find ourselves, uh, you know, in the digital world. So um, those are the kinds of skills I think we, we add to whatever we're good at, whatever we, our passions are. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. So there are spaces I mean, where human beings are complex and they, you know, they travel the world in, in all sorts of ways like you have in, in your own journey. Um, but peacemaking is a thing that you do along the way, it sounds like. Peacebuilding is a, a thing you aspire to do, not necessarily as an ends, but as sort of a travel habit, if you will. And, yeah. I, and I wonder, what does that look like for you? Or what, is, what has that looked like for you? Sort mm -hmm. of maybe at its best or in, in your memory as you sort of think about who you are and how you want to be. What does it mean to be a builder of peace? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I started out, well, actually, my, uh, the first education I had after uh, high school was electronics training, believe it or not. And, uh, and that was a hobby of mine. And I, when I turned that into kind of my profession, uh, it didn't sit very well because when you turn hobbies into professions, they, that sometimes doesn't jive very well. Um, but, uh, you know, my first passion was development work uh, in, in much of the two-thirds world. Uh, my first assignment was in Somalia, in uh, East Africa. And, um, but very quickly in that context, I ran right into the, the elements of conflict. Uh, it was at a time when the nation state was collapsing into uh, anarchy and chaos, um, breaking down from some kind of structured government into very tribal, um, or clan-oriented, I should say, um, kind of existence and a heavy layer of violence involved in all of that. And, uh, and I came away from that experience thinking, wow, what I was trying to do in terms of development was just wiped out in a, a month or two. What um, type of development were you involved in? Well, um, we, were, <laughs> we were actually found ourselves in a refugee camp. So it, in, in a sense, it was relief the development part of that was working with uh, education skills training in a refugee camp in the northwest uh, part of the country. And th the folks we were working with just had a very tenuous existence uh, out on a moonscape of a, an environment where all the trees had been cut down, um, no education, or I should say there were there was camp education, but no, n not much of the infrastructure, like even school desks. Mm -hmm. So that was that was one of the very basic things I was working on, um, training some carpenters to use lumber to make school desks for children mm -hmm. to sit at. But uh, when the Civil War broke out, uh, all of that was just wiped out, and and with a mass exodus of people, um, all of those. Anything I was uh, was doing physically, anyways, it was gone. Skills training, who knows uh, how that um, how that tracked with the people who you know spread out from those camps uh, during the violence. So, so you were in Somalia, sort of with the intent of sharing certain types of skills, whether it relates to technology, carpentry, etc., to help with this issue of infrastructure and 
um, crafting the world the way you want it to be. Um, meanwhile, in, the people in Somalia are asking for this or needing it, wanting it, yet for both of you, kind of life happens, right? So their ability to pursue their desires for you know, creating this larger structure um, and uh, community with these resources, skills, and know-how uh, gets trumped by um, sort of larger superstructure government conflicts that are taking shape in the countryside, mm-hmm. as well as your own life and desires sort of get stymied by that as well. And so all the way around, uh, this question of conflict seems to arise. And I think when you talk about peace, and when you've talked about peace just now, conflict's not far behind it. So what's conflict? We have peace and we have conflict. Yeah. And I wonder, what are, what are these labeling? Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, you know, in, in the classes I teach, um, that's one of the first things we, we, we talk about is what are the definitions of some of these terms? And what we end up finding is that they're very complex, mm-hmm. and uh, even the literature kind of ha- has some disagreement on that. But conflict, um, and and so let me let me talk around that in in a sense that um, conflict will exist in a perfect world. But I think conflict, as in so many things, is is neutral. It presents the opportunity. What are we going to do with it? And 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 conflicts. You know, each of us, when we find ourselves in the energies of conflict, have the choices. Are we going to pursue this thing in a in a destructive manner or in a constructive manner? And that's the neutrality of it. What are our choices that we do? Are we going to add to the hurt and add to the you know the harm that's being done, or are we going to try and transform those things um, and come out the other end with stronger relationships, better communication styles? Those are the opportunities that are presented. Um, they're uncomfortable because conflict in, in and of itself generates a lot of, even a lot of physical con, uh, a lot of physical energy. When you think about what happens when you think, oh, all of a sudden I find myself in in conflict with another person. Our 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 physical energies are realigning themselves for fight or flight, and that's our survival mechanisms that's the you know the the base parts of our brain that are saying hey this is a dangerous thing this is potentially dangerous prepare for it oxygenate your muscles um, you know you get tense you get headaches or uh, you know whatever the result of that is in preparation for something you may need to do for your own survival the higher order thinking is to reoxygenate the creative parts of our brain because those things do get shut down uh, automatically when the body switches into this fight or flight mode. And reactivating the creative parts to say, okay, three deep breaths here. How can I engage and move toward this conflict in a way that, that will be redemptive? That will that will draw out the other person as opposed to harden their position, for example. And um, the creative parts of that, the imaginative parts. How can I imagine beyond on the other side of this conflict, whereby by the issues that we were fighting about, for example, are um, are no longer the issues, but we we've come to some kind of understanding compromise in its in its least form and collaboration and consensus in its best form so that maybe we could think of peace as kind of an ability to 
create, an ability to make, you know, make things happen the way you want them to happen, um, or at least to work in, in that direction. And conflict is uh, when one party is perceived as stymieing another group from that creative process. So maybe peace is actually a kind of a cooperative, generous creation between groups and uh, or parties, and conflict is maybe, something getting in the, in the mix of that. Maybe conflict is the vehicle. You know, when I think of the opposite of of, of violence, mm-hmm. and, and I struggle with the language here, uh, the opposite of violence isn't peace. Mm-hmm. The opposite of violence is creativity, is imagination. Mm-hmm. Because when you find situations of heavy violence, you find that there's a lack of those kinds of things. Okay. And and that, 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 that the conflict, if, if we take the assumption that it's neutral, mm-hmm. is actually the vehicle that gets us to creativity. Is it possible to to transform conflict when one of the parties is perpetrating violence? That is the art of this. That is the art of nonviolent change. It's the art we see in in Dr. King's work, in in Gandhi's work. Um, it's the art we see around the world today, where there are struggles with with one party perpetrating a lot of violence in a conflict and if we go back to the definition which i've danced around now there's some kind of disagreement over attitudes over beliefs over uh, even structural things that have been uh, marginalized people um there are disagreements over that there there is a tension over those things and so that's one of the elements of conflict certainly and it, the question is, how do we how do we either bring some equity and parity to those situations, or um, when one party, you know, is using violence to maintain a status quo, the other party has that choice. Do we tit for tat use violence in return and and in a sense overpower, or do we invite the transformation of the other? So you know, in my definition of peace. There are a number of layers here. And, you know, part of my own journey is figuring out the interconnectedness of the layers of peace. Right. When we talk about inner peace, uh, we talk about a, a person who can navigate life in all of the conflicts and still have that sense of groundedness, a sense of vision as to where we're going for the, for the greater common good. Mm-hmm. Um, in one of my little onion diagrams, I, I suggest that inner peace is actually right-sizing ourselves with, what's your primary word here, God, with the other, capital O, um, with that which is not us, uh, but is transcendent. Um, right-sizing ourselves in respect to that, that mystery. But on the other end of the, the spectrum, and I like to use, again, the, the, the analogy of the onion here, the outermost layer, the layer that most often is, is, is given to the definition of peace is the absence of shooting, right? <laughs> and, and that's uh, metaphorical or it's literal in, you know, in some of the places I've been. The absence of shooting. So when the bullets stop, when the, the verbal abuse stops, then we have peace. But in reality, that's just not sustainable, especially if there are issues of injustice at hand. So then the, the next layer of the onion, which is the more usable part, is like, for example, just peace. Is there justice 
in a society, do, do people have a sense that um, there's enough? Uh, that they're, they're, that they experience justice on a day-to-day -day or a week-to-week -week level. Um, and then beyond that, there is some kind of relational harmony. And it's interesting to me, I was, I was thinking about uh, that uh, for this interview today. I was thinking about how various religious traditions have, have, have been better uh, at articulating that. And... Um, and I, and I think that's why we need each other in all the diversity, because this, this concept of peace uh, comes from various angles, and we can understand it in, in a, a lot of different ways. Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle, too, I think, with, with the question of religion or any, any sort of example that's been seen as uh, a model for best practices in peacebuilding or peacemaking. And I see this a lot with conversations about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? So his dream speech is wonderful. We talk about, you know, to be American means to pursue that and to help other people pursue that within the nation-state context, except the larger context in which he was speaking, you know, this this march on Washington for jobs and freedom, the 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 jobs part drops, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we forget about the sort of nitty-gritty. He wanted right. a certain type of economic justice and was addressing yeah. some larger systemic issues. Right. Uh, right. That kind of falls away in the memory. And then also his speech or his conversation that he has a few years later with a journalist about the dream becoming a nightmare. He says, well, that optimism was great about coming together and holding hands, but now we've got to put our money where our mouths are. And it doesn't seem like Americans are willing to do that. And he, you know, he has pretty harsh words about maybe, or actually, yes, definitely, for us to do better as a community, you might have to give up something in this process. And um, that question of just peace that you brought up seems to get at, get at that to me. Like, when is it right for uh, us to minimize our conflict? Maybe there are times when we need to have that conflict happening to work toward a more yeah. equitable and just yeah. solution. And, and I see this playing out as well with um, questions of religion and how we remember religion because while these traditions like the world religions are popular now in some spaces, not everyone who practices them now came from people who are practicing them. I mean, they're all built upon these histories of domination, right? Mm -hmm. We just have forgotten about mm -hmm. it if we want to keep going with it. Or we've made peace with it and said, well, we're going to get better at it. And I wonder, how do you, how do you sort of see that playing out in these conversations of religion and violence and how they're related? Yeah, I want to go back to something that, that, um, that you talked about, Dr. King. Um, as I've studied nonviolent change and the movements that have really leveraged nonviolence as a as a long-term and sustainable kind of change mechanism, because because we are talking about change here, and 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 the the grandiose speeches, the ones that evoke the best in us, are good, but the nitty-gritty of nonviolent change is actually the strategies. How do we strategically make each of our, our actions and movements toward nonviolence contribute to the structural ways in which violence is embedded in our society? And 
And I think there's some really great examples now going on, even with Ferguson, for example. There's a working group that is that is that is continues to work at the structural piece, the ways in which racism is embedded in in that part of of our nation. That of course is has tendrils into the whole structure of the nation, but at a local change, um, there's this this idea that we've got to be very strategic, and each of the ways in which we spend our energy in nonviolence needs to contribute to the, the overall march toward a just peace. Um, so do we, so do, yeah. do these strategies work differently when talking about conflict with individuals versus conflicts with structures or, uh, you know, I'm thinking like that, corporations or people sort of thing. Well, right, are the strategies right. different or maybe the tactics different when you're working toward this peacemaking process? Uh, when you're talking about individuals versus a, right, a larger right, system, right. well, and see that's part of the analysis that, and I'm going to back off here and get kind of cerebral because it's part of the analysis that we need to do. You know, in the development world, the the the, the buzzword now is you know your your theory of change. Where do you locate change uh, when you are designing for change? And, and I got to stop here and, 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 and say there's a paradox. Some days I wake up and I can't even change myself. So what am I doing talking about designing social change, right? So there's a paradox in which we have to pursue designing social change and at the same time recognize there's got to be some other greater force at work here. Um, and that's the utility of religion because it, it helps us to grasp the mysterious and the the serendipitous things that happen in these change processes. So that's yeah, just a little yeah. caveat that, yeah, to say, yeah. um, uh, you know, we are designing change. What's your theory of change? Where does it start? In the human heart or with the structures that we have at present? Right. And I um, think the, the mutually informing sort of results of that, right? I mean, we see this typified by religion, right? That if you change the self, you can change the other. If you turn the other cheek, right. the world, right? You know, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. If I turn the other cheek, the kingdom of God is at hand and, you know, Caesar will, whatever. I mean, that's a very powerful statement. Yeah. Um, st sort of way of thinking about how the world works. And even though it's difficult for us to talk about manifesting individual change or systemic change, religion seems to package that in a way where the paradox is tenable, or at least we can get okay. through tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, as you've seen and as we've seen in media and um, in scholarly yeah. conversations as well, uh, that relationship between this example we've labeled as religion and violence is a is a tricky one when I think when we unpack it, it's really about how humans do this human thing. Well, and yeah. and practically, you know, the utility of nonviolence becomes self-evident when I ask, you know, if you hit me, what's the best way to stop us hitting each other? To hit you back, or to to work at my own transformation and invite you instead to become an ally, a friend. Can I hit you and, and club you into being my friend? I'm not sure the world works that way. But the absorption of violence, and I recognize that I'm on shaky ground here as a white male, you know, in this whole conversation, but I think Dr. King had some, some principles there. 
And, and the only way with which to do that was to ground that in, into some kind of transcendent system, of religion. I'm using yeah, sure. very generic language here, but where do you get the, the sustainability? What gives you the continued kind of vision yeah. to pursue a path that seems so counterintuitive most of the time? But again, this is one of these principles of nonviolence. At first, it looks ridiculous. Love your enemy? You gotta be kidding me. But as these conflicts progress and get deeper and deeper enmeshed in violence, loving your enemy actually looks a little bit more rational than trying to bomb your enemy into a friend, which we all kind of figure yeah. out, yeah, well, that's not working, and it hasn't worked. Otherwise, we'd have peace by now as a human race, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, or we keep doing it because yeah. we think it's working well enough for the time being or for or certain ends. Right? stopgap I mean, measure or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I, it reminds me of um, some of the things that Bruce Lincoln has the religious studies scholar and theorist has used to sort of unpack this question of discourse and conflict. And, and another scholar commenting on Lincoln, uh, I think her name is uh, Darlene Weaver, she, she talks about this moral recoding that goes along with these systems like religion or these ways that we view the world, that there's this moral recoding that allows for turning the other cheek and other activities to look completely rational and useful and having great utility, as does hitting your neighbor until they stop hitting you, we somehow morally recode that to see that not as a kind of a, a risky endeavor, but something that is really effective and useful. And if I can just get better at it and do it better the next time, I'll be the best me I can be. Um, it makes me wonder, though, as we talk about the educational environment, mm. you being in the academy, um, as one who has also been sort of hired in some ways to help people think through these and work through this, what do you make of the question or the issue of sort of objectivity? We privilege objectivity in the academy and say, okay, you got to see what everyone's doing and, and understand it and not pass judgment. Do we have time for that in a world full of the mm, types of conflicts mm. you're saying? Or, yeah. or is there some utility there that you think is, is useful? I, this is where the... the um some of the the Buddhist principles, and I'm kind of out out of my my uh, zone here. But what I have observed is this ability for myself to observe with non-judgment is really an area of of personal growth for me, because I've seen the power of being present in situations and being uh, being non-judgmental. And, and making observations as a kind of a mirror. And if, if my life is a mirror back to you about, and this is, you know, my kids used to, when they were small, used to run around and I would say, there's little mirrors running around because I would hear myself in them and I would go, whoa, I do not want to be that. I think the, the power of non-judgment, now whether that's the same as objectivity in sure, academe or not, right, right. but the the individual transformation of myself from a very judgmental person to to trying to be less judgmental more observing i think is one of the basic skills of of peace starting at um the change starting at an individual level how well my my faith upbringing my religion enables me to do that is a big question are, uh, 
are our belief sets getting us to be that kind of person? Um, because it's again, it's it's critical in a world that is um, breaking into tribalism and my group against your group. And I think an idea I got from Mitislav Wolf, you know, I need to understand my own, uh, where the walls of my own f belief sets are so that I can make doors and windows into them and invite you in and, and, and be able to see out clearly. And um, that's the question I have uh, f for my own uh, tribal people <laughs> in religion, right? Uh, and also um, for my students in the class. How well do we understand ourselves and our own walls to put the windows and doors in? John Rudy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. This, is, this has been fun. I hope I've been articulate enough. I feel like uh, uh, you've had a very good set of questions here, and you're on to something. So All right, well, keep it up. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was our guest, peacemaker John Rudy. Life's journey has taken him to North America, Africa, the Asian Pacific, and the Middle East. All along the way, he's been working through conflicts, trying to make things peaceful. I'm your host, Richard Newton, and on behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Aponsuwan, thanks for being here. Till next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the magazine, SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. Like us on Facebook at Sowing the Seed. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Thanks for listening.